This is number four of the series of expositions of the Epistle to the Colossians given in the chapel of the opened book. In our last study, we were concerned particularly with the prayer that we find embedded in the first chapter of the Epistle to the Colossians. And we go on now to consider particularly from verse 12 onwards. But before we do so, there is a lesson to be learned by the fact that the Apostle was not sort of stereotyped in his approach. In Colossians, he prays first, and then recounts your blessings afterwards. In Ephesians, he recounts your blessings first, and then prays. Well, it may be that sometimes it's wise to take one course, and sometime another. Circumstances alter cases. So I want you to look back for a moment to Ephesians, because you'll see that just as in Colossians, he stresses what is ours by the word hath or to have, you'll find he does the same in Ephesians. So verse 3 says, he hath blessed us. Verse 4 says, he hath chosen us. Verse 5 says, having predestinated us. And in verse 7, he knew we have redemption and uh, down a bit further, we have obtained an inheritance, you see? That's the basis. What we have is the jumping off ground as to what we can be. Will you turn to Hebrews to see another aspect of this same uh, approach? Chapter 4, to illustrate it. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have, verse 16, let us, you see? Those two. We have, let us. Well, now let's see what we have. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly. We have, let us. Or to get it again in chapter 10, Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24, let us, you see, there's a, there's a sort of a relationship. What we have beneath our feet gives us the strength of character to then do or be in harmony with our calling. When we come to Colossians, the prayer is rather, without using the word let us, the prayer is, let us seek the grace to grow in grace, to be fruitful in every good work, and then we have what we are, uh, what the basis of it, by this emphasis upon the word what we have. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet. Verse 13, who hath delivered us. Verse 13, who hath translated us. Verse 14, we have redemption. We have. Let's now consider these verses 12 and 13 and 14. Instead of saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us, he says, giving thanks unto the Father, well, that is the same, isn't it? In essence, we say, blessed be God, we say, thanks be unto God. 
giving thanks unto the Father, not asking for anything, you notice, not wondering whether it's possible, but already saying thanks for it. As though at the end of this, you could hear the echo of the same apostle's words in another context, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Here it is. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet. The word meet is quite good in the sense that God is making us um, so equipped as to meet every claim and every emergency. Because strictly speaking, it is still true that eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. We only have a vague idea, if we've got any idea at all, of what heaven, what the right hand of God, what heavenly places can mean and be. We haven't got the remotest idea of how to equip ourselves and get ready for such a presentation that will take place one day. When you come to think of the flutter of hearts and the visits to the dressmakers and things that used to go on when the deputants were contemplating being presented at Buckingham Palace, well, it's nothing, friends, as what we are going to be in the sight of principality and power, angels, in heavenly places, to be presented without spot in that presence. Well, there's nothing we can do, is there, to, to prepare us. And so we are told, he hath made us meet. If you'll turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll see that this word meet is there translated a little differently, and it will be useful. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, or New Covenant. That word, sufficient, sufficiency, and made us able, are all translations of the word that we have here in Colossians. He has made us meet. That is to say, he has made us all sufficient for the inheritance of the saints in the light. So even though we do not know what we shall need up there, we have no worry about it. We're not going to be embarrassed and turn up with a black tie when we ought to have a white one. Up there, God's got it perfectly planned and it's all ours already in Christ. Surely that ought to steer our hearts a little bit Sometimes we get so flustered and flurried over the things that go up and down in this life, but all to sit back for a minute and say he hath made us all sufficient for the glorious day that's coming. So we'll hold up our heads among principalities and powers because we're not standing in our own strength or in our own merits. We're standing as we are in him. In the tabernacle in the old days, there was two piles of bread called showbread on the table, but you wouldn't see them. They were there, but nobody could see them because they were completely covered with frankincense. Something white and something fragrant. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We are seen in him. 
So this is only lifting out from Ephesians and saying it again. He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now another feature. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us sufficient to be partakers. The word here means to divide up and have a share. We have a share in what? Oh, friends, we are shareholders. And in the newspapers just recently, the some shareholders have been worried stiff. They've been going up to doors that have been locked. They've been calling meetings that nobody attends. They are conscious, they are conscious that some of their hard-earned savings, whatnot, may have gone down the drain. Shareholders. But we are shareholders in that which is confirmed by righteousness based upon redemption given in grace and has the infallibility of a God that cannot change behind it. Share. We've got a share. And what a share. Shareholders, partakers of the inheritance. Now the word inheritance is kleronomia and it's made up of two parts. The first part, kleros, means a lot. And so it is an allotment. We have had our inheritance or our allotment all secured. Now, you remember I read in Psalm 16 those words, uh, thou maintainest my lot. We'll go back again in case somebody here hasn't quite caught the point. I've, I've spoken about it many times, but that doesn't mean to say I mustn't speak about it again, I hope. Psalm 16. Because... This is in the mind of the writers of the scriptures when they use the word kleronomia for an inheritance. It's an inheritance which has been allotted. Now, it was literally by lot in the Old Testament. Lots are not now used by Christian people, uh, but in the Old Testament economy, the lot falls into the lap, but the disposition thereof is of the Lord, says the Proverbs. Now, it says here, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The word maintain has got the word in it that means a hand, doesn't it? M-A-I-N. Like the word manufacture and manicure have dropped out the I, but there it is. We get in a legal term, mort main, the dead hand of somebody right down the ages, the word hand. Well, there is the idea of a hand in this, in the original. And to get it, i just pause for a moment to describe. You have, in the early history of Israel, the little village, and they had a surrounding country, certain distance round them, that belonged to the village, not to any one person in it. It was common property. And once a year, or once in three years, they would meet in the house of one of the elders of Israel in the village, and a little tiny child who couldn't possibly do any manipulation to favour Uncle Ben or what not, would put his hand down into a bag and take out a name and put his hand down into the other bag and take out a lot. And Uncle Ben would get lot 12. You see? Now, Uncle Ben may have his heart going like this because he wonders, and sure enough, number 12 is, like the Lord said, the different ground round the village was Stony ground, very shallow soil, thorny ground, or good ground. Which is it going to be this year? Nobody could tell. But this man says, oh, there's no chance about it with me. Thy hand has gone down into the bag and you picked out, oh, what a lot for me. That's what God's done for you and for me, hasn't he? Not in the things of this life, perhaps. 
We know a bit about the stony ground and the rocky ground of present day experience, but all when we think of our inheritance, what God has done, he has put his hand into the bag over that which was selecting and made. Yea, he says, the lines, the lines by which they measured the plot and said, that's your bit. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Well, if a man could say that in the Old Testament with what God had then promised, how about you and me who were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and no God and outsiders, we discovered that we were, pla- we were prepared by God or he had prepared for us an inheritance and revealed it in his own good time. Here it is. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us all sufficient to be shareholders of this allotment that he has selected for us. And where is it? It is the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, an inheritance of the saints is a little bit vague. Will you go back again to Ephesians? And there you will discover that it says, um, verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. His inheritance in the saints. In chapter 2, verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, but that's not what it says. It says fellow citizens of the saints. Well, how can you be a fellow citizen of a saint? Well, as they used to say otherwise, it all depends what you mean by the word saint. Now, we do not use the word saint as they do in the scriptures. But in the epistle to the Hebrews, they use those very words for heaven's holiest of all. The real holiest of all, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So instead of of the saints being people, it's the place. So we have our inheritance in heaven's holiest of all, where Christ sits in the light. That's where the light is. And then if you look further down this same chapter of Colossians, you'll see something which balances it. Verse 22, In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So he says it all over again. We are made meat for the inheritance. What does that include? Holiness, blemishlessness, unblameableness in law court or in temple as we get to it we'll explain that again and it's in the light and it's in his sight no hole and corner about it right out into the light that searches through and through and shrivels everything which is not of God we are going to stand and we're going to be able to take the position already given us in Romans the 8th chapter and answer every challenge who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect And the answer is, it is God that justifies. That's our position. We are boasting, surely, aren't we? But we are boasting in him. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, but boast I must in this. And here he is, telling us our meekness, our all-sufficiency, to stand in the searchlight of, what does that hymn say? Uncreated light. Yes. 
eternal light, how pure that soul must be. Well, we have no hesitation to say in ourselves we'd never get anywhere near it. But in Christ, we're there already, potentially, according to Ephesians, seated together with him. Well, then the next thing is, the next step in this wonderful uh, record is, he hath delivered us. This word deliver is the idea of rescuing us from some imminent danger. And uh, I'd like to give you parallel passages because sometimes they help you. Uh, they may not always be obvious, but here's two. Matthew, the sixth chapter and the thirteenth verse, where we have this word. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or from the evil one. Deliver us. A prayer, because we can't deliver ourselves, but he can. Deliver us. And then, the agonizing prayer of the apostle expressed in Romans chapter 7, when you remember that he speaks of his own struggles and says in chapter 7, um, verse 23, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, what's he going to do? How could he deliver himself? He's bound hand and foot by these things. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he doesn't say who, but he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all he can do. That's all he need to do. For the prayer to be delivered, is addressed to the one whose very title is the Deliverer. Israel will be in the same fix, but he will send a Deliverer to Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob one day. So let's be thankful that we have a Deliverer. So we have an inheritance which has been allotted to us and it's in the light. And we are delivered from what? Oh, yes, obviously, from the power of darkness. Yes, you see, we were once associated very particularly with darkness. So much so that Ephesians, you see how many times we keep going back to compare, that's so wise. You were sometimes darkness, said the Apostle. But now are you light in the Lord? Here it says, you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light. See, it's the same thing coming out again. But again, this goes further. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Now that power is rather a pity that it's translated power because there is a word that should be translated power in the scriptures and that is the word which gives us the word dynamic or dynamo or dynamite. That's the proper word for power. But this word excelsior means authority. Listen to this man speaking to the Lord. I also am a man under authority. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and come, and he cometh. And the Lord looked at that centurion and he said, I've not seen such faith, no, in Israel. Why? What was the point? Well, he said, Lord, I'm looking at you. You need not, you need not come. You've only got to speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority and what I say goes. 
I see that you have authority at what you say goes. Isn't that the point? Yes, authority. But we come nearer. If you'll turn to Acts 26, you'll see the apostle was there anticipating as it draws near to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, the new ministry that he was about to enter. He's recounting what took place on the road to Damascus. Verse 16. But rise, and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness. Now he had a twofold uh, commission here. Oh, I've been called all manner of names because I will not admit that on the road to Damascus, Paul was given his complete uh, mission and he knew all about the mystery right at the beginning. This says both. And the word both means two things. I have appeared unto thee to make thee a minister and a witness of two things. One, these th- of those things which thou hast seen, and two, of those things in which I will appear unto thee, that's future. So on the road to Damascus, Paul knew that there was going to be another visit of the Lord to give him a second commission. Now he says, it's come. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles. Paul wasn't delivered from the Gentiles in Acts 9. There weren't any Gentiles to bother about in Acts 9. They didn't come on the scene. But the Gentiles have got him now. And he's on the way to a Roman prison. Delivering thee from the Gentiles. The uh, people of the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee. And again, I was lashed fearfully because I, I kept to the authorised version. Unto whom now I send thee. Because there are some manuscripts that leave the word now out. And I have to say, oh, I'm so sorry that I emphasised it. Because the word I send is I am sending. So if you put the word now in, you said it, and if you leave it out, you intend it. You can't say, I am sending you yesterday, can you? So I am sending remains unaltered whether you have now or not. And it's simply a matter of the emphasis of the now or the assumption that it's there. So here he says, at that moment when he wrote those words, I've received my second commission unto whom now I send thee. To open their eyes, Ephesians 1. To turn them from darkness to light, Colossians 1. And the authority of Satan unto God, Colossians 1. That they may receive forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1. And Colossians 1. And the inheritance among all them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So there's another aspect of the inheritance in connection with the saints, the sanctified ones and the sanctified place. So you see that verse is a wonderful anticipation of what was almost Uh, are going to take place immediately. Now back again to Colossians chapter 1. Oh, there's one uh, uh, passage, of course, is screaming out for our consideration. That is Ephesians chapter 2, when it says, the prince of the authority of the air. The authority. And in Ephesians 6, the world holders of this darkness. And again, in Luke's Gospel 22, And when our Lord was approaching the cross, this is your hour and the power or authority of darkness. Our Saviour submitted to the power of darkness that one day it may be written that he hath delivered us from the power of darkness. He death by dying slew. He submitted to it so that we may never 
have to submit to it again. There's a complete deliverance. And then he goes on to say, in verse 13, he hath translated us. We think of Enoch, and we also remember that the word is used of transferring, especially used in the Old Testament and by Josephus, of transferring a people from one land to another. Now, it may have been done by captivity. It may have been done by the power of a heathen to conquer the people of Israel. But it means, in any case, to take them from one land and one authority and put them unto another. Well, that's what's happened to us. We have been translated from the authority of darkness. We have an inheritance in the light. And it says, here we have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. I always like the little bit about Enoch. You've heard it many times. The child said that Enoch walked with God one day so far that he never came back again. That was good, wasn't it? Whether that's a true uh, translation of Enoch's translation, I leave. Uh, but there was an association with the fact that he walked with God and he was not, but God took him. If that's the case, we are a little bit like Enoch if you look at chapter 2. Verse 20. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is no living in the world? But he's practically saying, you're not living in the world, isn't he? Well, you know full where you are in one sense. You're living in the world today. You've got to pay your fare. You've got to pay your rates and taxes. You've got to be honest. You've got to be, as far as it's humanly possible, peace with all men, obey the rulers and whatnot. But he says, oh no, from another point of view, you're dead. You're like Enoch, you've gone. You're translated. And he says, why as though living in the world? So you see, you're already anticipating in your attitude the fact that you are delivered and translated. And then it says we're translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, unfortunately, we have to use terms. And we have sometimes to... uh, be very careful in the application of these terms. And one of them is this word kingdom. You see, if a person is uh, careful in their teaching and says, now when I use the word kingdom truth, I really mean that body of truth which is connected with Israel who are going to be a kingdom upon the earth with David or David's greater son as their king that Christ was born at Bethlehem in the city of David because it was a kingdom. If you understand that when I stress the word kingdom, I mean that, in contrast to the church, that's all right. But then, of course, on the other hand, the people of Israel were a church long before Christ came. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Old Testament is full of the word assembly, and in the Septuagint, the word ecclesia comes in there in the Old Testament, and Stephen in his speech speaks about the church that was in the wilderness. Well, you say, how can there be a church? Well, why not? What is a church? Ecclesia is a called out company. Well, God called out Israel from the rest of the nations and redeemed them. He's called you and me out. So all companies that are called out at all times are a church and all redeemed can never get outside the kingdom of his son. And they don't never want to. But it doesn't mean to say that we are going to be in the same relationship as Israel because we say the word kingdom. Supposing we alter the word kingdom just for a moment to the word sovereignty. 
Can you imagine any calling to be outside the sovereignty of God? Isn't his kingdom over all? So you see, the word kingdom does come in the prison epistles. It comes in Ephesians. It comes in Colossians. It comes in Second Timothy. But that doesn't mean to say that we smudge the whole thing and say all means one and the same thing. It means there's rings within rings. All the various callings are in the kingdom. But then afterwards you have to subdivide. And it depends on your point of view. When I was in America, it was announced that I lived in England. Well, that's all right, because there's the Atlantic in between. But when I'm here, in this country, well, there's no good saying I live in England. They say, well, he lives in London, or he lives in Beckenham, or something. You see, you, it's the same. I'm living in the same place, but I have to have a smaller circle. If I say I'm living in London, that, that doesn't prevent me from saying I'm also living in England, does it? So if I'm in the church, which is London, I'm also in the country, which is England, which is the kingdom. So he says, we have been translated into the kingdom. Now here's the wonderful expression, not merely of his dear son, which is wonderful enough, but the son of his love. It's put out like that. It's a little bit of a figure of speech, but it's emphasizing the son of his love. And in chapter 1, you get for the first and only time in this epistle to the Ephesians, the word beloved. In chapter 1, verse 7, uh, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. When he repeats himself in Colossians, he doesn't say in the beloved, but he says, in the kingdom of the Son of his love. Isn't that wonderful? I suppose that's the ultimate word. The beloved. The son of his love. And we are in that. There are some folks who use the word love so many, many times that it loses all its meaning. I, I don't know whether you are like that. But, of course, it's nice, I suppose, to somebody say, yes, love. But uh, you can keep on saying it till it loses all meaning then some of us are very reticent about saying it, that we're like the old lady and the old chap at the very end of our days. He said, Jean, he said, you know I love you? She said, yes, but I wish you'd told me once. You see, that's where I am. A little bit like that. But here, the stress and the reticence. God doesn't use it many times. He doesn't use the word beloved all over these epistles. When he says it, oh, he means it. Accepted, accepted in the beloved. Twice only, as far as we know, in the history of Christ on earth, did the Father call him his beloved. This is my beloved son. Once at the Jordan. Once on the Transfiguration. And here it comes. We are delivered and we are translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Well, now that leads us to the next great section where we have commencing with redemption and ending with reconciliation. Will you notice, this is more or less what we have got to yet to consider in our future studies. In verse 14, we have redemption through His blood. Verse 14. In verse 20, we are reconciled by the blood of His cross. And that is stressed again in verse 22, in the body of his flesh, through death. So, now we shall have before us 
that most important subdivision of the sacrificial work of Christ, redemption, which takes us out from our bondage, and atonement or reconciliation, which leads us in to the presence of God. The one delivering us from all that stands in the way, the other giving us access, because there's no veil between, no sin unforgiven, accepted in the beloved with a wonderful uh, privilege. But there's coming in between that, a feature which is very, very distinctive of Colossians, and I've indicated it on this chart. You see, I've simply got on that end of the word, the one word, inheritance. And then when you come down into the practical section, again, the same piece, thanks, pleasing, and inheritance. So I think for this present study, we'll turn the page to chapter 4 to see what he says about inheritance there. And then we should have rounded off our study and got ready for next time. Now in chapter 4, chapter 3, I'm sorry, uh, we are beginning to deal with the outworking of the truth. Because it's already been preceded in chapter 3 by the husbands and wives and children and fathers. And now he says, servants, verse 22, and masters, chapter 4, verse 1, you see. Now he's dealing with servants. And this is what he says about the servant. Notice he gives the servant four good, solid verses. It's very wonderful that Paul when he wants to sometimes emphasize a piece of glorious truth, he has said to the servant something that he didn't say to the others. We saw that this morning in Titus chapter 2. And we see it again here. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And of course that's true, that's right. But when you come to remember that these were slaves, at the disposal of their masters. They had no rights. They could be divided up, their families taken from them, they could be sold by, to somebody else, and yet they were not to serve with eye service, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and not unto men. Now why? What was there to encourage a poor slave to be so faithful? Well, he says, look, God is not unfaithful to notice your response to the truth, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive, not the inheritance, oh, that's already yours. You haven't got to serve your master faithfully to get the inheritance, it's yours by gifting, grace, redeeming, love has done that. But he says, knowing that the Lord that you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. Now this is parallel with Ephesians emphasizing the hope of your calling and Philippians emphasizing the prize of the high calling. So now we're on the ground not of salvation, but of service. Service is associated with reward and prize. And here it is. For ye serve the Lord Christ. Now some have objected. And again they've objected strongly to me in writing that I've dragged the church of the one body down a bit be by the thought that there's ever such a thing as the judgment seat of Christ in connection with them. They are exempt. But I said the Apostle Paul didn't seem to think so, for he wrote in verse 25, And he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. No respect of persons. You can't say, Oh, but I'm a member of the body of Christ. I believe in right division. I, I used to go to the chapel of the open book. Oh, God says, did you? 
Well, he would have been a better person than the other man then. So, we are accepted in the Beloved without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But when our service comes up, God is going to have no sort of bias, no respect of persons. Each one of us will stand before him separately. So that's sort of a sobering thought, isn't it? So we're rejoicing fully with unmitigated thanksgiving that we have redemption. We have been delivered. We are accepted. And then we go out with a sober thought. Now, my service, which which is a response to that, is going to be considered by the Lord I love. And he's even said, although he's given me so much, he's even said I'll add to it a prize or a reward. But he also says, if you do wrong, you may suffer loss. But you remember the passage in Corinthians, you may suffer loss, but you cannot be lost. All those things which could never enter into eternity will go up in smoke and you'll only be glad to see them. But what a pity. So may God give us grace to have balance in our truth. Here it is. We have the inheritance. We're not sure about the reward of the inheritance. So by grace, we still look to him for grace in this pilgrim pathway that we may, as Titus puts it, adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Well, that brings our study again for the moment of this epistle to the Colossians to an end, and we hope to meet together again next uh, next Sunday afternoon, and with you, dear friends, in the distant parts, to go on to consider this great section of Ephesians, which brings before us Christ in relation to creation.